Welcome to the American College of Emergency Physicians eQual Network series on the Opioid Initiative, and I'm your host, Michelle Lin. This series focuses on reducing opioid-associated harm for our emergency department patients. And in this podcast, I'll help distill webinar pearls from opioid and pain management experts to answer burning questions that us frontline clinicians may have. Today's podcast is on overdose prevention and naloxone distribution from the perspective of the emergency department. And today we feature an amazing one-two punch expert team to weigh in on this topic. Dr. Maureen Boyle is the Chief Scientific Officer for the Addiction Policy Forum and was previously the Chief of Science Policy at NIDA. And Dr. Edward Bernstein is a Professor and Vice Chair of Academic Affairs of Emergency Medicine at Boston Medical Center and Medical Director of Faster Paths to Treatment Program. Let's start with Dr. Boyle's presentation. In her webinar, she focused on two questions. One, which patients are at greatest risk for opioid overdose? And two, what can EDs do to increase the distribution of naloxone? So let's start off with some numbers. No presentation, right, would be complete without hitting us with some shock and awe numbers. As we all know, opioid overdoses have been escalating rapidly, and there's an epidemic of overdoses across the country. In 2016, there were more than 42,000 opioid overdose deaths. And this is just the tip of the iceberg of the number of opioid-related emergency department visits across the country. The CDC recently released an analysis that showed that between July of 2016 and September of 2017, there were more than 140,000 opioid overdose-related emergency department visits across the country. And they looked further to see that the, the increase in opioid overdoses is occurring in communities across the country, from highly rural areas to more urban centers. And so these are happening in all types of communities across the country. And what we know is that there's a very high mortality rate after a non-fatal opioid overdose. A a study done in Massachusetts that followed over 12,000 patients after a non-fatal overdose found that nearly 10% died within the first year, and half of those died within the first month. So this is a, a very large percentage of patients who end up dying within one month after discharge. Another study found that doctors continued to prescribe opioids for 91% of patients after a non-fatal overdose, with 63% of those continuing to receive high-dose opioids. Of those, 17% overdosed again within two years. So this patient population is known to be at high risk for a repeated overdose. And emergency departments are critical points of intervention for preventing these deaths. And these types of interventions can include brief interventions following an overdose to try and engage patients in care, educating patients who are prescribed opioids about their risks and strategies for mitigating those risks, prescribing naloxone both to patients who are at risk as well as to potential bystanders, and educating them about how to administer naloxone as well as things like initiating medication-assisted treatment within the emergency department setting and establishing a referral network to community treatment centers. Wow, shock and awe indeed. I had no idea that patients presenting with an opioid overdose had such a high rate of mortality, 5 and 10% in the one to one-year time frame, respectively. Wow, talk about a sentinel event that is waving all sorts of red flags. Naloxone, of course, is the centerpiece to the solution, but not just clinician-administered naloxone, but rather home naloxone. But before we get into this shift in mindset, let's start with the basics on naloxone. It's an opioid antagonist with a high affinity for the opioid receptor. 
It typically reverses an opioid overdose within just a couple of minutes. But the half-life is only about 30 to 90 minutes. And so there's a risk of a repeated overdose because most illicit opioids have a much longer half-life. In addition, multiple doses may be needed, especially for the highly potent opioids like fentanyl. And we have three main formulations of naloxone, an injectable formulation, a nasal spray, and an auto-injector that's similar to an EpiPen that walks the patient through the injection. And the FDA recommends starting with an initial dose of 0.4 to 2 milligrams of naloxone and doing repeated doses up to 10 milligrams as necessary. But in 2016, the FDA released guidance for take-home naloxone programs that recommended starting with the 2 milligram dose of naloxone because of the highly potent products that are out on the street right now. And as I mentioned, you know, we're seeing an increasing number of patients who are needing multiple doses by EMS. It's also important to note that naloxone is a very safe medication and that high doses have been given to healthy subjects without adverse effects. Research really shows that naloxone distribution can save lives. And so while we don't have reliable data on the number of overdose reversals that have occurred across the country in community settings, the CDC did an analysis a couple of years ago that showed that between 1996 and 2014, there were at least 26,500 overdose reversals by laypersons. And this is likely to be a significant underestimate because we don't have great ways of tracking reversals, especially if people don't call 911. And one of the most robust studies that looked at the efficacy of naloxone take-home program was in Massachusetts that found that in communities that established these take-home programs, there was a significant reduction in fatal overdoses in those communities compared to those that did not. And looking within the, the communities, they found that the communities that had high implementation rates had a stronger reduction in opioid overdose deaths and actually a 46% reduction in those communities compared to the communities with lower implementation rates that had a reduction of 27%. Great. Thanks for reviewing the literature and epidemiology findings behind the home naloxone programs. Let's get down from the population level now to the individual level. What happens when a patient gets home naloxone? Dr. Boyle highlighted study results by Dr. Alexander Valley presented for the Food and Drug Administration in 2015. Listen to Maureen's distillation of the results. This study basically looked at symptoms of opioid withdrawal after an overdose reversal and found that about 50% of patients were experiencing withdrawal symptoms. And this is important to understand because you know, it's often frustrating for healthcare providers, especially after an event like an overdose, patients aren't always willing to enter treatment and they're, they're not always willing to, to discuss getting help. But understanding where the patient is at that moment can help to explain that. So if the patient is in acute withdrawal, they're probably scared, confused, and upset, and in a pretty acutely stressful situation. And we know that addiction changes the brain. We know that it changes how we make decisions. And it can make the patient believe that they need the drug for survival. And so this prospect of giving up the drug can be an incredibly scary prospect. So while they're in the midst of that, while they're being pushed to think about giving up this substance, but they're also dealing with withdrawal and dealing with this very stressful situation, they may not be ready to talk about engaging in treatment. But it's still important to offer it and to make sure that we're having positive encounters and building trust with the healthcare system. So naloxone distribution can both be that bridge and to keep patients alive until they're willing to enter treatment. And this is part of a broader public health approach to addressing addiction, because we know that stigma and 
discrimination remain pervasive, even within the healthcare system. And while we know that patients with addiction can be challenging, that also often means that, that patients end up having bad experiences with the healthcare system. So it can take multiple attempts to try and build that trust and have patients be willing to engage in discussions and engage in care. So harm reduction approaches such as naloxone distribution, teaching patients about sterile injection procedures, syringe service programs, safe injection sites, both help to reduce drug use and increase patient engagement and care, partially by rebuilding that trust within the healthcare system. I really like the mindset of empathizing with patients with opioid addiction and not giving up on building trust from a systems level. Let's talk about the systems based within the emergency department. Emergency departments can seek to increase naloxone distribution to patients who are at risk. And this includes patients who have previously overdosed, patients who are prescribed over 50 morphine milligram equivalents per day of opioids, those that are co-prescribed benzodiazepines, those that are changing opioid medications, those that have comorbid mental illness or a history of substance misuse, those that have, have recently had a period of absence, including people who have gone through opioid detoxification or have recently been released from incarceration, um, as well as patients who are prescribed opioids with a long half-life, such as methadone. Within the healthcare system right now, the opioid crisis has been kind of at the forefront for a number of years. So it's easy to imagine that everyone has heard of naloxone. But a recent study in Cook County, Illinois, showed that while about 76% of patients who injected heroin were aware of naloxone, only about 32% of patients who were receiving opioids for chronic pain were aware of the existence of naloxone. And with one in five pain patients having experienced an overdose, this is a really important population to target to make sure that they're aware of and have access to naloxone. Only about 3% report having a prescription for naloxone or having received training. But the research shows that the co-prescribing of naloxone with opioids leads to fewer opioid-related emergency department visits. And just as importantly, patients find it acceptable. So they're okay with their doctor initiating this conversation and prescribing them naloxone. I can see how prescribing home naloxone can indeed build some trust and destigmatize opioid dependence for an often neglected population. But is it as easy as that operationally? Just prescribe naloxone whenever you prescribe opioids? And another important thing to incorporate into naloxone distribution programs is a short training on how to administer naloxone. These can be done in just a couple of minutes. And there are some really good videos online that can be used for this purpose. And the core components of this are to make sure that they understand the signs of an overdose, that they know that they still have to call 911 because of the short half-life of naloxone. You can um, tailor the training to administer the type of naloxone based on the formulation that will be distributed. Make sure that they understand that they may need to repeat uh, with additional doses of naloxone if the patient isn't responding, that they can use rescue breathing if needed, that they put the patient into the rescue position and stay with the patient. And also importantly, remind them not to put the patient in the shower or inject them with stimulants or other things that have commonly occurred. Naloxone administration education sounds like a critical component of this approach. Okay, got it. Let's switch gears now. Dr. Boyle discusses the legal aspects of prescribing home naloxone and helps clear up some misconceptions. And there are a number of laws that pertain to naloxone distribution and naloxone access. 
A really good resource for this is the Prescription Drug Abuse Policy System or PDAPS.org that will allow you to kind of go into detail for your specific state into things like the Good Samaritan laws, access laws, the immunity laws, both for prescribers and bystanders, as well as the requirements to act. There's also a couple of health information privacy laws that may be of relevance. In most cases, the only law of relevance is HIPAA. And the Office of Civil Rights has released a guidance last year around the requirements of HIPAA in terms of uh, communicating with family and friends uh, after an overdose. There's also tends to be some confusion around 42 CFR Part 2, which is the substance use disorder treatment confidentiality rules. And in the vast majority of cases, emergency departments are not covered by this rule. Perfect. So let's wrap this up. Dr. Boyle certainly has made a strong case for a home naloxone and outreach program. Does your ED do this? Here are some of her final thoughts. Naloxone is a safe and effective medication. Patients who have overdosed are at very high risk for overdosing again. And emergency departments can be critical points of intervention for distributing naloxone to high-risk patients and saving their lives. Thanks to Dr. Maureen Boyle for this fascinating 30,000-foot view advocating for ED naloxone distribution. But operationally, let's talk more about that with Dr. Edward Bernstein. How would an ED set up such a program? What are some key considerations, strategies, and pitfalls? Dr. Bernstein starts off with a story involving a neonatal resuscitation. And if you're like me, those words terrify me, neonatal resuscitation. So grab some popcorn and listen in. In the 80s, I was faced with a newborn infant who was in respiratory distress, and I heard in the background some talk about methadone. The child was not breathing by the time I saw her, and I quickly intubated the child and then used naloxone down the ET tube and revived the child. And that sort of gave me a passion for naloxone and how powerful it is to bring people back to life. And the other passion I've had is to involve the community and community folks, especially people in recovery, in helping us do a better job in the emergency department to help them link up with treatment that they need and provide life-saving information and strategies. What a cool background story on what launched Edwards' advocacy work. Let's talk about the logistical considerations. I got a ton of questions. Wait, let me grab my list. Okay, here we go. Who will order naloxone for ED distribution or prescribe it? Who will actually distribute it to the patients? Where will it be stored and dispensed from? Who will train ED staff on naloxone education for patients? Can EDs partner with outside agencies? How can we integrate peer coaches and licensed substance use disorder counselors into the ED? Ah, oh, that's a lot of questions. Maybe let's just start with the elephant in the room. What's it going to cost us? Naloxone has its cost, and it ranges from $40 to $4,000. Who's going to absorb the cost? In a number of places, the Department of Public Health have paid for this. Grants have paid for it. Hospitals have put out their own funds for it. But I think in the final analysis, if, if the more people that are insured, the better. And if insurance reimburses, it would be a lot easier. However, we have a problem in our emergency pump setting that any take-home medications cannot be billed for. So that creates a problem. The left has sent people to the pharmacy, and some studies have shown that this isn't very successful. Maybe if you co-prescribe with other medications, they get to the pharmacy, but it's not necessary that people will show up at the pharmacy. Certainly self-pay is not possible with a higher-end, more expensive medication. Emergency departments that have had programs for naloxone distribution have been able to bill for the SBIRT, Screening Brief Intervention, or OBERT programs, as well as for the education material and for the nasal atomizers that are needed for the nasal naloxone. Okay, well, let's take a look at this. 
through the lens of an actual case study, and that is Dr. Bernstein's experience with the Boston Medical Center in collaboration with the Boston Public Health Commission and Bureau of Substance Addiction Services, and that is a hospital, city, and state collaboration. Edward goes over lessons learned and practical pearls in opioid education and intranasal naloxone kit distribution. Let's take a listen. Our emergency department is a major center for for opiate overdose. A third of the city's overdoses come to our hospital, and since 2013, the numbers have doubled. Our program has gone through several phases. So the first phase was a, a small grant in partnership with one of our communities, the South End, we appealed to our institution to make it a hospital mission. And the uh, Public Health Commission director came to meet with our president. And as a result, a policy was created in which any patient that presents to the emergency department prior to discharge who is at risk for an opiate overdose should be offered naloxone. Getting early stakeholder buy-in seemed like it was the foundation for success. When the institution deemed it a priority, phase two of the project evaluated this policy change and found that more naloxone rescue kits were indeed given to patients. And in phase three, the team obtained constructive feedback from the key stakeholders like the nurses, physicians, pharmacists, social workers, and licensed alcohol and drug counselors, as well as examined more after-hour access issues to the rescue naloxone kits. But what about from the patient's perspective? Did they comprehend overdose risks or even use the provided naloxone? In 2015, Dr. Kristen Dwyer and the team published an Annals of Emergency Medicine journal article discussing these particular questions. This was our first attempt during our pilot program. 37 folks who were contacted by phone out of 51 had received take-home naloxone. 27 witnessed an overdose, and of those, six used the naloxone. And 95% stayed at the scene. This was very encouraging to us, and we were able to help argue for a hospital-wide policy, which is that licensed personnel can provide at-risk patients with naloxone after project assert hours are, which is from 8 in the morning to 12 at night. After those hours, the hospital will can waive the payment for all these prescriptions, and they would be distributed through the inpatient pharmacy back to the bedside. It really is amazing to hear how Dr. Bernstein and his team have implemented change in order to lower cost and access barriers for patients in order to get rescue naloxone kits. What sort of longitudinal data or trends, though, have you noticed since Project ASSERT started? When we looked at our data for the two-year period of evaluation, it turned out that it was only about one in eight received naloxone, and we know we had to do better. There was a need to do better, and that's why how we interviewed the staff to try to find out what was standing in the way of the policy and becoming more strongly implemented. Some of the attitudes were, in theory, it's great. It's our mission to address public health issues. And others would say, we can't think of a reason why they, they wouldn't use Narcan. So we definitely had a support on the theoretical level. But when it came to implementation, there were serious problems around protocol and policy, workflow, patient-related issues, staff responsibilities, and who was going to do what, and education. Particularly, staff were not happy with a standing order from a provider outside the emergency department. They weren't enthusiastic about carrying out a standing order. The next, they were concerned about who should get it and the fact that the flow required that they allocate their time appropriately. And so the more serious patients would come first. And yet, if it was focused on those who have overdosed and received naloxone in the field, a number of those patients weren't willing to stay long enough to get the medication. So those were some of the issues. What we implemented to make some changes was to have us use our EMR system so that all the doctors would have to do is just click a button 
and then our ED pharmacy would distribute the naloxone to the bedside and do the education piece. At the same time, during the daytime, Project which is the peer counselors, had a peers model, which was they were paged to the bedside, they'd evaluate the patient, they'd do the education, and then they would make a referral. I would try to negotiate a referral to our bridge clinic where they could access buprenorphine or naltrexone, or if they weren't interested in medication, to detox or to remediate. And finally, the team would try to arrange for a safe discharge and ask permission to contact any family member or friend that could drive them home or to look out for them. With, oh, so many tasks being asked of physicians, nurses, pharmacists, and social workers in the ED these days, I love how you are trying to make it as super easy, cognitively light, time efficient, and hassle-free as possible. Listen to Dr. Bernstein's final thoughts on what were the main wins and key considerations that made the Naloxone Distribution Project a success. Some of the key factors that led to success was the ED and administrative support and buy-in. Folks that were interested in coordinating and championing this effort, trying to develop some strategies to minimize barriers, especially using the EMR, trying to assign roles so that people know what they should be doing more clearly. And then we had all the things that Dr. Boyle talked about, all the enabling factors on the state and federal level that was going on in Massachusetts. The governor declared this in 2013 a state of public health emergency of opioid overdose, and that added more support. Going back to one of the biggest barriers is how the people have been treated in the emergency department or how they feel they're going to be treated. And so I feel now it's time to save lives and not to moralize and to address this stigma as a decisive barrier to people seeking treatment that come into our emergency departments and educating our teams so that there's more welcoming. The expert model has within it a brief negotiated interview that basically focuses on the judgmental, caring, and supportive way of approaching patients. And I think that's going to be really critical once these other things are in place. So this is necessary, but not sufficient. Preach, Dr. Bernstein. It's time to save lives and not demoralize. Hopefully this role model example of Project Assert in Boston provides some helpful insights for those interested in launching or troubleshooting sister sites using similarly thoughtful, multimodal approaches. Thanks to Dr. Maureen Boyle and Dr. Edward Bernstein for stopping by and talking on overdose prevention and naloxone distribution. Thanks for listening to the ASAP EQUAL Network Opioid Initiative Series. Listen to the other EQUAL podcasts on SoundCloud or iTunes or view the webinars on the ASAP EQUAL website. Until next time, let's keep the opioid epidemic conversation and harm reduction efforts going. <laughs>